Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Max Blumenthal, the editor and founder of The Gray Zone and author of several books, including most recently, The Management of Savagery, published by Verso in 2019. I welcome Max Blumenthal to Savage Minds. My first problem, invariably, when dealing with the Middle East, especially Palestine, Gaza, is that we get uh, not even half of the truth with major media. I'm most appreciative to Gray Zone and other independent sites that are going further to dig up the information. And sometimes it's not even digging up, it's just talking to people. Yeah, I think that covering Palestine has become a lot easier. Uh, You know, even the mainstream media is beginning to present a more even-handed approach. But what I set out to do almost 10 years ago was to show just how fascist, how fascistic and right-wing Jewish-Israeli society was becoming and how it was setting the stage for a series of hideous wars and the kind of violence that we've seen inside Israel proper, where you see mobs of Jewish youth smashing the glass of Palestinian-owned storefronts in Israeli cities and attacking Palestinian citizens of Israel in the streets. I mean, all the horrors that have poured out. I pretty much, um, you know, surveyed the landscape of Israeli society in my book, Goliath, in 2013, after spending five years off and on inside Israel-Palestine. And it was, you know, as you said, it was about just talking to people. Just living in central Jerusalem and talking to people, um, living in Jaffa, which is just south of Tel Aviv, and talking to people, being all around the West Bank. And, you know, you can look at any area there and just focus on that area, and you'll see a microcosm of the whole issue of the crisis that, that Zionism has created for the entire population. And I just went from place to place. And the chapters are sort of like vignettes that connect together into an overall picture. And I, you know, my story was the atmosphere, this kind of all encompassing atmosphere of ethno supremacy and the um, ethnic tension that you feel at all times and in one of the most militarized societies on earth. And then uh, a year after I released that book, I thought it was, you know, maybe time to move on. And the book took me three years past the date that I told my publishers it would be out. It was still a very successful book in that it kind of, it broke a lot of taboos in talking about Israel in the U.S. And, you know, I got into a series of debates with liberal Zionists who believed Israel is Jewish and democratic and that it truly wants peace, even though it's flawed. And they, you know, got their asses handed to them. And I thought, you know, it's time to move on. And then Israel enacts its most savage assault on the Gaza Strip in 2014. And I wound up in Gaza for the latter part of that attack. And so that led to my next book on Israel-Palestine, The 51-Day War. And that book, I think, provides a good backdrop to what's happening now in Gaza. This is just a continuation of this, of, of these kind of disproportionate assaults by Israel on Gaza, but with the armed factions in Gaza able to hit back 
harder and harder each time and demonstrate the futility of Israel's military strategy. Well, what would you say to people, as you know, after what happened in the UK and the Labour Party and various accusations often constructed of anti-Semitism, someone hearing you talk about the Jewish state will say, oh, that's anti-Semitic, where you and I both know that right, these right. are words that use, they're sort of a right-wing form of wokery, if I could say. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Well, the first time I went to the West Bank, I'll tell you, the feeling I had in my gut was I've been lied to. Not that I ever bought mainstream media, but the way it was so misrepresented and continues to be, as you said earlier, it's less that way now. It's a bit better representation, but still as Americans or even Canadians, you know, the media just paints this picture of barbarians and people who need safety. Not that the barbarians do, of course. And so the language of the Jewish state is something that some people will take issue with. But many people, some of our listeners, I, I would say even, might not be aware of the state of Israel's heritage in fomenting a certain ethnic narrative. And I'm thinking of not only Golda Meir, but the early days of offering incentives to families to have many children that would receive bonuses, which was discontinued when the Palestinians were the group having the more children. Yeah, uh, there's you know a lot to respond to there, but there's actually a great uh, academic study called, which was turned into a book by Rhoda Kanane, whose father actually was a farmer who fought the Israeli state. He was a he was a Palestinian citizen of Israel who managed to stay after the ethnic cleansing of 1948 and managed to successfully fight the state for the land that it tried to seize. Uh, and his daughter became an academic and wrote a book about the um, natalist strategies of the early Israeli state and showed how David Ben-Gurion was enacting pro-natalist policies for the Jewish population. Um, providing them with even awards. Women would get awards if they had 10 children. They'd get like the mother's award. And the Palestinian women, meanwhile, inside Israel, who were actually living under military law, under de facto occupation, the same way that Palestinians in the West Bank are, they would receive extensive um, family planning and, you know, family planning, education, pamphlets would be taken into their villages on how to have less children. And of course, their, the births were not incentivized with special kind of benefits and credits. So it was obvious what they were trying to do. And if you look at what the, what the Gaza Strip is, you can also see how Israel is demographically engineering a artificial Jewish majority in order to declare itself the Jewish state. Gaza is a human warehouse for a population that the Zionist ideology has mandated to be surplus humans because they are not Jewish. So they are from mostly what is now Israel. They were ethnically cleansed, forced from their villages and land in 1948 and soon afterwards. And they have to remain in the Gaza Strip and there's nowhere else for them to go. Egypt doesn't want them. Few other countries want them. The, the educated youth can get out, but basically they're just there in this teeming ghetto surrounded by fortified militarized walls. And every time the prisoners rattle their cage, they, you know, and stage kind of like an Attica rebellion, the prison guards sh shoot them. 
so that I mean, it all this is the this is the the source of the crisis is this violent demographic engineering. It's ethno supremacist at its base, and if you talk about it in such a stark but factual way, and you talk about it to Zionists, yes, they resort to a right wing form of wokery where they accuse you of anti semitism. They assert not only their Judaism, but the historical Jewish suffering, which they usually themselves aren't experiencing because like me, they're, they're living in affluence in a golden age in the West. Uh, and they, but they just, you know, play the oppression Olympics, just like the people that, you know, the neocons like Barry Weiss mock among liberals, where they'll assert their ethnic identity to shut down all debate. And that's what happened to Jeremy Corbyn um, Jeremy Corbyn was someone I actually, who actually hosted me in parliament before he was known at all to the world. He was a backbencher in 2014 after I came from Gaza. I arrived in London and Jeremy Corbyn immediately made space for me to talk about what I saw in Gaza. And he did that for so many people who were advocating for Palestine. And then there was a surge of support from him within activist circles, 100,000 100, or more new labor members swept in to support Jeremy Corbyn. He almost won the 2017 elections and he was being targeted by what I would call an assassination attempt. It was not only just Jewish groups in the UK, it would be false to even call them Jewish groups. These were, this was an Israeli assassination attempt on someone who could have been the leader of the US, the top US ally who was fully in solidarity with Palestine. And uh, figures like Ruth Smith in the Labor Party were deployed by the Israeli state, along with Israel's own embassy, openly attacking Corbyn inside the UK uh, to paint him as an anti-Semite and make his life impossible. A veteran anti-racist campaigner was successfully branded as some kind of Nazi. This wasn't the main reason I think he was defeated, but it shows what Israel's capable of and willing to do if a leader in the West challenges them. And I always said that Obama, if he had effectively actually challenged them, would have faced a physical assassination attempt. We're not seeing much better now, are we? I mean, how much uh, did Biden <laughs> um, in, in weapons just agree to with Israel today? What's well, to be expected? I mean, I think, a I think you know you, you, that older generation of right-wing Democrats, they genuinely believe in Israel, but they also, I mean, you know, I grew up in Washington, I talked to some of these people and gotten to know them and they really believe there's no way you can challenge the power of the Israel lobby, so why even bother? And it has uh, cemented its roots within the US, uh, but as you mentioned, uh, it's everywhere. It's in the UK, it's in France, it's in Canada. When I was there, aside from having the experience, I only took transport with other Palestinians. So a trip to Bethlehem took four hours. And this is another thing that we're not shown in Western media largely are the many roadblocks that outside of Gaza, which is a prison, the West Bank is by comparison fairer 
but it's becoming more and more like that because of the settlements. So when people say things that are reminiscent of something Barry Weiss would say, I invite them to go to Batsalem's website and look at the many maps, interactive maps, so people can understand that what is a 20-minute trip for an Israeli becomes a four-hour obstacle for a Palestinian. Because you had, that day I went, it was four hours because there were like five machsam, and then each machsam had its own walk within it. So you'd have to walk amongst all these bulldozed buildings to get to the other side to take another collective taxi. And this is another sense of how humans have been geographically corralled, not only, as you mentioned earlier, the ethnic cleansing of sorts that's going on here, but it's also done geographically by positioning them into these mini spaces that we see in Gaza quite clearly, but we see in the West Bank with the absurdist wall that has been constructed now since the mid 2003-04 era, and the way in which these settlements are pinpointing movement all the more, such that every time there's a settlement, Palestinians can't just simply go from point A to point B because that implicates moving around settlements that can make their trajectory double, triple. Yeah, it's about fracturing a people, fracture, fragmenting an entire nation. And it, it, in the current moment, you can see Palestinians would like to enact a, a third intifada where the entire nation rises up together. Um, but there is a separation wall between the West Bank surrounding Jerusalem. So Palestinians from the West Bank can't join in the struggle in Jerusalem and you have 300,000 Palestinians there who are completely defenseless uh, as they are being subjected to evictions and ethnic cleansing in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood, which has been going on since 2002, by the way. And all around it are evictions and families being pushed out of their homes, demolitions. They, they, have, they have nothing there. There's no one to defend them. And so when rockets were sent in to Jerusalem as a message to the Israeli state about throwing these families out. Palestinians cheered in East Jerusalem. They said, finally, someone's defending us because we have nothing here to defend ourselves with. And we're cut off from our brothers and sisters in the West Bank, as well as you know the population inside Israel proper, which Israel likes to brag about and claim, oh, they're full citizens. Um, they, Israel's tried to construct a new human and a new psychology out of them and try to de-Palestinianize them, which has obviously completely failed, as you see in the current moment. And the way, I mean, this, this separation policy, it's really a separation principle. It's not just a policy. It's, 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 it's at the heart of Israel's uh, deterrence. It, it helps me understand how imperialism works. Um, this was why um, the British Empire enacted Sykes-Picot. It wanted to carve up and fragment the Middle East and hand part over to France. Uh, it's why Britain supported the Zionist movement to prevent uh, a, uh, a Palestinian people from getting access to ports that the that the Britain wanted access to in the Mediterranean. It wanted. It's it's why Britain. Uh, enacted the imperialist plot in 1956 to topple Gamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt because it wanted the Suez Canal, but also because it, it, it fears 
pan-Arabism. It fears these nations actually acting as one powerful block. And so it does everything it can to fragment them. It handed over Transjordan to the Hashemites who had been kicked out of Iraq. And that's what you, and so when you look at Palestine, you really see a microcosm of the whole Middle East today where people are living cut off from one another, uh, often in countries that are um, antagonistic to one another. Syria is now fragmented where you have the US and its uh, Kurdish proxies occupying the Northeast and then Northwestern Syria is effectively controlled by Turkey and its Al Qaeda proxy. Um, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham. The whole plan is to balkanize and carve up the Middle East. And the U.S. has the same strategy that it's been putting in place in Eastern Europe after the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union. It began balkanizing uh, Yugoslavia, turning it into these tiny little right-wing ethno-republics and doing the same uh, in the Baltic states, making these tiny little, uh, turning these tiny little countries into NATO protectorates and turning them against Russia. What it's doing in China with Tibet and Xinjiang, which are part of China, is trying to pit the uh, population on ethnic lines against China in hopes of creating these independent NATO-centric ethnostates. It wants to fragment that whole region because the greatest threat to US empire is a a uh, powerful Eurasian block in the heart of the great world island where all the minerals and resources are that can actually challenge this kind of transatlantic neo-colonial block that the U.S. has established with the EU. And uh, so I look at Israel as just kind of like this base for fragmenting and shattering the Middle East, breaking up Arab unity. And it's been uh, expressed as such throughout history by uh, U.S. leadership. Alexander Haig called Israel our aircraft carrier in the Middle East. Well, this is reminiscent of what the U.S. has been doing for years. I mean, let's not forget what the U.S. government did for Patrice Lumumba and then Kwame Nkrumah. I mean, pan-Africanism yes, exactly. posed as much a threat as pan-Arabism. And we've seen this also by the French taking aims at countries that were under its control during a very long time uh, from Algeria, where bizarrely, I learned doing a project for a French publisher, the French had disappeared a huge chunk of the Algerian population in the 1870s and 80s, such that this isn't even recorded. Meanwhile, opposition to the MPLA in Angola in the 1970s, we know it happened there the support of Hesene Habre in Chad. So the CIA, yep. the US, and we, this is what our country does. It's not just the Contras over in the Americas. And so a lot of people get confused because when I was growing up, I remember hearing about the Middle East conflict and it never made sense because we were served up a platter of the good versus the bad. Do you think a third intifada is around the corner? I think we're seeing what would what we're seeing, what is ha going to happen, this is this is it. And people have always, you know, I, I used to ask, will a third intifada break out? But I think that's that's just not in the cards anymore for the reasons that I stated. The separation wall that exists in and around the West Bank to cut Jerusalem off 
but and also cuts like Tulkarum, uh, West Bank city off from a uh, what you would call an Israeli city now. The, it, it, the Palestinian population is so separated that it can't uh, get together on a nationwide basis with people rushing in from the West Bank into Jerusalem to actually recreate the first intifada. And it, the first intifada, which was mostly just stones, uh, children marching, you know, uh, mostly peaceful marches, but also general strikes making military occupation just untenable. That kind of modality, it remains the model. Um, Israel would like Palestinians to move towards this, the back to the suicide bombing of the second intifada because as much horror as it instilled in Israeli society, it was, uh, it gave Israel the moral high ground and allowed it to present itself as the victim on the world stage. And what I wrote about in my book, The 51 Day War, was about how the resistance strategy, uh, not just under Hamas and its armed wing, the Al-Qassam Brigades, but among all armed factions led by the most powerful one, Hamas, really reshaped itself after the second intifada to be able to confront the Israeli military directly, to target Israeli military, to not target civilians in the same way they had before, and to develop strength and confidence. And that is what we're, what we're seeing on display. It's why an Israeli ground invasion hasn't taken place because there actually is enough capacity in the Gaza Strip to do serious harm to Israeli infantry in face-to-face -face fighting. And that's the kind of fighting that the factions in the Gaza Strip want. It's what the Israeli military does not want. Um, and it's why this, this is a, we're in a stalemate right now. So I don't even think there's really a need for an intifada because Palestinian, and, and in some ways you're, you're, you're seeing a, a massive amount of protests across the West Bank in the areas near settlements. There are clashes, if you wanna call them that, but it's really massive protests. Tonight or today is going to be a, a, a day of ferocious protests there and inside Israel-Palestine, massive protests. But, what, but my point is that Palestinian resistance continues to uh, be resilient and strengthen itself in kind of creative ways. And it hasn't fallen into the trap that it did in the second intifada. Yeah, although the second intifada, I, that's when I was there and I, was, uh, I did a, a book on the suicide bombers, precisely the female suicide bombers. Because if you recall, that was going on at the same time that we had like <laughs> back in the US Fox News talking about you know post 9-11, how these people just want to go to heaven and have 99 virgins. And I thought, well, this does not explain it because these suicide bombers are not lesbians. And I looked at the face of misery yeah. within the families of these five women, starting with Wafa Idris. And it was shocking to be in their homes and to see the portraits of their daughters, of their sisters, to enter Bethlehem or other towns and there'll be walls, you've seen them, the, the martyrs everywhere. And people in the West have been told that they're dying for heroism, which is a huge perversion of what's going on here. A huge reversal as well, might I add. I talked to Bassam Eid, who's a human rights 
expert, journalist. He lives in Jerusalem. He's Palestinian. He was critical when I spoke to him yesterday about Hamas. He said, they're hiding in tunnels underground. People are getting killed. They're getting all these millions. I think it's 30 million a month from Qatar and people never see this money. What do you make of criticisms like that to people who are critical of the Israeli state, of the treatment of Palestinians, but Palestinians who are not in agreement with Hamas? Well, Bassem Eid is not a legitimate Palestinian critic of anything Palestinian. He's a Palestinian collaborator who's been recruited by the Israel lobby, who subsists off the Israel lobby donations to attack the Palestinian nation and echo the incitement and uh, Hasbara, the, the Zionist propaganda lines as a Palestinian, that's his value. He has absolutely no constituency inside Palestine and is regarded as a complete pariah. So I wouldn't really take his criticism seriously. I've been to Gaza three times and there is criticism of there's, there's enormous criticism from the youth. And so what you see among the youth is that they're unaffiliated with any of the factions. Uh, the young people I know there are not supportive of Hamas's political line in any way. And I remember uh, during one of the last days I spent in Gaza, which is you know always really sad because uh, I, I really enjoy being there. I actually enjoy being there more than any other place in Israel, Palestine. Um, believe it or not, it's the most pleasant place to be. And people are, they actually seem the proudest there because they've kicked the settlers out. It feels the most Palestinian and uh, they're proud of being able to resist, but they're also hypercritical of Hamas as a leadership. So I was walking on the beach with a friend in Gaza city and there's this giant mosque there ornate mosque. And he said, you know, they spend millions of dollars on this stupid mosque and look at everything else. Um, you know, our sewage system is wrecked. I mean, is yes, Israel wrecked their sewage system. Israel did this to them, but the donations that come in from abroad, the, it's, it's to build those mosques. It's to uh, support this kind of domesticated Muslim brotherhood oriented elite. And, you know, we walked walking along the beach, you see a bunch of guys with very short cropped beards in dark suits come out of a cafe, uh, getting into dark cars. And th that's, you know, Hamas, that, that's like the Ikhwan guys, the Hamas leadership. And they're, they don't, they don't feel like a part. Those guys don't feel like a part of the people. And what, what's happened is that they've become very similar to what Fatah became before them, where they became detached from the people. They were going to international conferences, looking for international aid. And at the same time, they are responsive to the, to the people uh, who want to push back against Israel, whereas Fatah has completely given up. They're represented by this dinosaur, Mahmoud Abbas in the West Bank, who has declared that collaboration with Israel on security issues is sacred. Uh, and they have no, they have no deterrence there. So there's the, the, the Al-Qassam brigades have a figure who's like, he's not their leader, but he's who appears on TV, always with a mask on. He's called Abu Obaida. And the youth, I wouldn't say they, they love him or, or worship him, but 
This is a respected figure because he just speaks purely in the language of resistance. He surfaces during wars with Israel. He taunts Israel. And they, when they say, we are going to shut down Ben-Gurion International Airport, it happens. So when, when you know, the leadership of Hamas says something's going to happen on a civilian basis to improve the lives of people, it usually doesn't. But you, know, you obviously have to blame this, that the fact that they're completely under siege. But at the same time, you do have criticism of them. And because of people like Basim Eid, who are just used by Israel to antagonize and uh, belittle the Palestinian struggle, they feel uncomfortable raising their voices for fear of kind of playing into that. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. I remember when I was in the West Bank in 2003, and it was most interesting to see how there would be people very open, able to tell their story, and others you got the sense that you were being given a wash job of sorts, because there is a lot of politicization, even within Ramallah, of certain people who've been placed to represent certain interests. Let's put it that way. I got clued in rather quickly at the time, but as you know, the West Bank is peppered with all these settlements, such that the youth back in 2013 were facing, can we go to school? Because it takes us two hours to go to school. So their voices were the most elided at the time from media representation I'm speaking of. And also there was the constant hammering of how homes, I, I met people who lost their house the first week they lived in it, things like that. And these are the things we don't see. We're, we're told, what was that ridiculous thing? You tweeted it the other day, it was great, where Israelis getting killed, we know why, but Palestinians being killed, we have no clue, right? It was like absolute mystery shrouding the events of this past week. And although the Western media has been a bit better of covering it, it's still not there. Because I think you touched upon this earlier, but the way in which Palestinians are represented, even if beleaguered and in a struggle, the details aren't quite represented clearly at all. Like you read a CNN report, it's simply people are suffering, yeah. uh, both sides are suffering Have died. in equal measure. Right. What's the passive voice? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that sanitizes it. And it also exculpates who's doing what to whom. Yeah, this is something you also see in Israeli media. Whenever a Palestinian is killed, they just say they have died. But then with is when, when, when in the rare instance when a Jewish Israeli is killed, I mean, it's very rare now. In most years, the leading cause of Jewish Israeli death in Israel is suicide, at least within the military. Um, but when they get killed, it's an active voice. Palestinian terrorist murders Israeli. So the uh, U.S. media has adopted that voice. And it really, it, you can see the editor's hand there too. Like a journalist on the ground might deliver some decent copy. But the editor comes in, sanitizes it for the Israeli embassy. 
Well, the 735 million in precision guided weapons to Israel by the Biden administration is being represented also as there's a little kerfuffle in the Senate. Will this amount to much though? I mean, the Senate is, there have been a number of progressive Democrats in the Senate who called for a ceasefire. They, they have, it's basically virtue signaling at this point because at the UN, the Biden administration is blocking any action on calling for a ceasefire. And it's actually China who is leading the call for a ceasefire, which helps illustrate the two differing visions of world order, the vision advanced by the US and the vision advanced by China. China is working in a coalition with Tunisia and Norway, a EU country and a Middle Eastern country, which is more independent than many of its other North African neighbors to get this ceasefire through. It's basing it on international law and the traditions of the Security Council. And the US is acting completely unilaterally against the wishes of almost the whole world. And its Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, is preaching the rules-based order. So you have the international law versus the rules-based order. And when we talk about international law, we, could, we know where to, on, we, you can study it. There are international legal jurisprudence experts who study the treaties and conventions, and then they use them to legislate and advocate. The rules-based order, where do we find those rules? Where are they written down? They're nowhere. It's just a mob boss making it up for itself and its allies and vassals so that they can exist in a state of legal exception outside international law. And, you know, to uh, put it not hyperbolically, it is Nazi-esque because it is the same logic that the Third Reich used to dominate Europe by violating all conventions and treaties and declaring itself an exceptional nation that was that should not be bound uh, and bound by any conventions. And so it needed to overrun Poland. That's what the U.S. is is doing here with Israel. And also the fact that I remember when Blinken was about to be tapped, I think the word on the street was he was about to quite certainly receive his post. And in most jobs today, I know when I was a university professor, I had to sign all these conflict of interest clauses every year to keep up with the fact that I wasn't taking money with one hand yeah. and reporting with the other. Well, West exec, <laughs> aside from Michelle Flournoy, who was also allegedly going to be tapped into the Biden administration at a different job than she actually got. But I find it very interesting that you see very little focus on what the power of big tech and of arms producers is having today within the media, because the media is waking up a bit to some of this nonsense, especially around Palestine. But not enough for me. I would like to see more scrutiny of how these people are getting posts in the Pentagon, in the Biden inner team, and yet little is said about if they might be scratching someone else's back. I mean, West exec clients included Google's Jigsaw, Israeli artificial intelligence company Windward. There was a drone manufacturer, Shield AI, and on and on. Yeah. They make weapons with the Air Force. And then Google had Dragonfly that produced a lot of the AI used in drone warfare during the Obama administration. And if it hadn't been for the Google employees, 
threatening a walkout, that would have never ended. So, you know, there's a lot of these backstories from Israel to Silicon Valley that are still not cleared up within major media. Um, I saw your piece, though, uh, on, you know, what's going on in China last week, was it? And I was really taken by the fact that here you've just mentioned that's China leading the way with Tunisia on human rights. Meanwhile, the U.S. would have us believe the opposite. Yeah, I mean, just on on Blinken, well, he was an, a lobbyist for West Exec Advisors, which yeah. was founded by Michelle Flournoy, who was torpedoed, didn't actually get the defense secretary position she was looking for uh, in order to basically get Pentagon contracts for Silicon Valley companies. They also represented a who's who of companies doing business in Saudi Arabia, which Tony Blinken has had fostered close ties with during the Obama administration, including when he went to Riyadh to help organize a rearming of the Saudi military during its murderous campaign in Yemen. And this is a guy who's you know up to his eyeballs in blood since the Clinton administration and the war on Yugoslavia, and who is a war profiteer. And Mike Pompeo is just widely regarded as the worst Secretary of State in history. But, you know, when you look at Tony Blinken, you basically see someone who is actually much more accomplished than Mike Pompeo in doing harm around the globe and presiding over atrocities and who gets much less scrutiny because he speaks softly and has a smooth demeanor. He plays guitar in this rock, this cheese ball rock band called A. Blinken. <laughs> you know, he jams with Eric Clapton and he, uh, his his stepfather was the fixer to Francois Mitterrand and 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 uh, Robert Maxwell, the Mossadnik father of Ghislaine Maxwell. He's tied into the you know global reptilian elite. He was basically born into it. He's married to April Ryan, who is a former. Uh, Obama, I think she was in the Obama Pentagon and she was vice president at Axios Media. I mean, this is just someone who's beloved in the Beltway who's doing exactly what Mike Pompeo was doing, but more and profiting from it. And, and, and I think, you know, he's one of the, the most insidious figures in Washington. So we see his handiwork in Palestine as he preaches human rights and you know, back and, and then on China, you know, it's interesting to just look at the tenor of this administration toward China, China's Xi Jinping, Russia's Vladimir Putin, and Israel's Benjamin Netanyahu. When Vladimir Putin in March was seeking a new START treaty on missile testing, Biden called him a killer. When the US invited Xi Jinping to a climate summit, and China eagerly accepted, Biden called Xi Jinping a thug. When Benjamin Netanyahu sought permission to carpet bomb entire families in the Gaza Strip, Biden called him to give him the green light. So there's US diplomacy in a nutshell. The US can never ever exert leverage where it actually has it to support human rights. The US has leverage over Israel, it has leverage over its allies. 
like it has leverage over Saudi Arabia. And what does it do? Every time it abandons that leverage to support whatever war crimes and atrocities they want to carry out. And it has all of this space to do so politically in Washington because everything's normal again and the liberals can go back to brunch. There was an article in the Washington Post about like one of Biden's, uh, his, his campaign spokesperson, Simone Sanders, who is a black woman who used to be the spokesperson for Bernie Sanders, sold him out to get more money from Biden. When there's a story about how her and her husband are in love and they're seeking to make Washington normal again in the Washington Post. So that's like how Biden and his people are treated. Uh, and as horrible as Trump was on Palestine, I mean, it was just an absolute joke. They're building like the Trump Heights settlement and the Golan Heights and Jared Kushner is basically like, he's he, Benjamin Netanyahu literally slept in his bed when he was a kid. Like his parents would host Netanyahu when he was opposition leader and he'd go, Jared would get forced to sleep in the living room and Netanyahu would take his bed. Like as ridiculous as it all was, we didn't see a massive assault on the Gaza Strip during the Trump era for some reason. And as soon as Biden's in, it happens. And Jake Sullivan, Biden's national security director, just tweeted that we are we are adopting quiet, a quiet diplomatic approach. Like they're so quiet when it comes to this. So I mean, this is just why it's why people like me get much more alarmed and concerned when there's a democratic administration in town, when, there, when it comes to international affairs. Well, I'm with you. I said it before I had people hating me on my Facebook wall, but I said Trump has done less damage in terms of international killing. I hate to say it, don't like him, than Obama. And people don't like to see that. I think the Trump derangement syndrome sadly is a reality. And here we are talking about politics without necessarily stepping into partisanship. This is part of the problem is the way that the left and the right have believes in its own team, its own merit in Jersey. And I think we really need to start looking beyond that. Because one thing that when I was investigating the piece on big tech's involvement with, within Biden's own administration and Fleur Noy, she thought she was gonna have that job. But the scary part is everyone who was up for a job pretty much was coming from the, the defense industry or big tech. Yeah. And what does that say about the so-called leftish, liberalish, they're not left, but whatever, the neoliberal left, I'll call it that much. You know, we have a real crisis today where we have people who have solid human rights values, civil rights values, who are voting these clowns in and believe in them. Meanwhile, candidates like Sanders get sold out. You know, when you bring up Bernie Sanders, I mean, you see, I just... I feel and people who are much more committed to his movement and much less jaded than I was feel a sense of betrayal because he went along, he, he allowed himself to be brutally attacked by the media as a Russian agent. He allowed Biden to out debate him and red bait him on Cuba and every other issue of, of, of actual importance to us. He didn't poke holes in the Obama administration, in, in the record of Barack Obama himself, he would just say, well, I supported Obama and everything he did when Obama was one of the worst presidents for the American working class since Reagan. I mean, or, or, or just 
fit perfectly within a line of terrible presidents. <laughs> and, and, and he refused, he refused to examine his record because he, I don't know, was afraid of upsetting the masters of the Democratic Party. In every step of the way, Bernie Sanders allows his movement or, or works to put his movement back into the grip of a pro-war, pro-Wall Street party that's supposed to stand at odds with his values and his stated beliefs. And where is he now? He's just back in the Senate where he always was. Uh, he's comfortable there. He's collegial with Biden. And, you know, they elevated him to the you know, head of the budget committee and he's happy. He did not want to win. He didn't have the killer instinct. And if he actually had one as a socialist, he would have been destroyed in a way that made what happened to Jeremy Corbyn look like a vacation. So it's very alienating and disillusioning because you don't see a way out. It's hard to see a way out of this sort of what Nader would call, Ralph Nader called a duopoly, but what really just feels kind of like a corporatocracy and what actually is just an empire. It's an empire where both, where the entire political class and the um, military have merged with corporations and industry. And for those of us on the outside, we don't have anywhere to go. Yeah, and nobody's talking about the actual poor because from the EU to North America, how many governments have rolled out actual protections for renters? Seriously, New Yorkers are being told, you can pay it back one day. How many people are going to be able to afford $20,000 in back rent? Because they don't have jobs. The social issues, the pedal to the metal issues. What was the COVID relief in the first place? It was just, they're just paying landlords. They're paying the rentier class. That's where all the money went to. It wasn't like people actually got it and were able to invest in their families.
Thank you.